First, just a little bit of back, uh, personal background. Um, <clears throat> uh, I had taken a course in Euclidean geometry in my sophomore year in high school, I guess. We didn't use the original source, though. We used textbook. Um, studied numbers when I was in grammar school, the way you did, I'm sure. <clears throat> Wasn't particularly interested in number theory, so didn't think much about numbers for a long time, except in doing measurements. Um, <clears throat> So when I came to um, teach Euclid here at the college, um, I came as one with a background that's typical of a lot of students. I think used to doing mathematics algebraically, that it sort of become uh, my, my custom. So it was fun. It was both challenging and fun to get used to Euclid's mode of doing things. Um, I enjoyed it very much, actually. And as we went, went along, you know, we got to through the first six books. Book five was a little puzzling, but you know, kind of figure that out, and you get through the first six books, and you're starting to feel pretty comfortable with Euclid, and then all of a sudden, you get to book seven, um, and I ask myself, what is he up to here? Um, there's a long list of definitions at the start of book seven that showed he was launching into arithmetic, so I wonder, what is he doing? Why take up numbers when we have been on such a roll doing geometry? I would have expected even more theorems in plane geometry or maybe the beginning of, so of solid geometry. What we got instead were propositions about relatively prime numbers and about proportions of numbers. I was puzzled. Why is Euclid doing this? <clears throat> I was also puzzled about something one notices right away. After the usual enunciation of a theorem in words, Euclid displays the numbers in the setting out as lines. <clears throat> I would have liked the setting out to have been done in algebraic notation, but I noticed, and I noticed that the students usually wanted that too. <clears throat> I also wondered about the order in which he presented his propositions. Why doesn't he begin the study of arithmetic from the beginning, as one would expect from the practice in the geometrical books, and then go through theorems about numbers in some systematic way? It didn't look to me as if he were doing that. So after studying the entire book of the elements, I was also puzzled about the order of the number books within the book as a whole. Why are they placed after the treatment of plane geometry and before the treatment of solid geometry? Eventually, I also wondered whether we should conceive of book 10 his treatment of irrational magnitudes as belonging with books seven through nine in a way, rather than as a book standing on its own, just as a necessary preliminary for understanding a few things about solid figures. <clears throat> this question didn't occur to me the first two times I taught the elements back in the old days, but it seemed an obvious thing to wonder about when I came back to the book many years later. <clears throat> so in this talk, I want to suggest some answers to these questions. I don't pretend to be a scholar of Greek mathematics, or to be able to look back into the past to read Euclid's mind. Nevertheless, I believe that in thinking about these questions, we can discover that they are closely related and that a coherent account can be given that provides a reasonable understanding of them all. <clears throat> so, part one, <clears throat> the representation of numbers by lines. And by the way, when I say line, unless I say otherwise, I'll mean a straight line. Okay. <clears throat> I remember many times my much beloved colleague and friend, Molly Gustin, would say that numbers are lines. Usually, I would strenuously object. Eventually, though, I could see what might lead one to say such a, a thing so outrageous to both kinds of mathematical purists on campus, that is, to the lovers of the ancients and to the lovers of the moderns. <clears throat> I think Mrs. Gustin was probably influenced both by Euclid's way of depicting numbers and by the Cartesian extension of arithmetical notions into geometry. In defense of her notion, remember that it has become a commonplace to speak of the number line. It is only after Dedekind that, that the modern mathematicians attempted to free the real numbers from the geometrical tether that Descartes had used to bind them. 
I know that Mrs. Gustin was not sympathetic to that program. <clears throat> Despite the fact that we disagreed, I think I can understand why she wanted to identify numbers and lines. But I want to be clear about this. I do not think that by representing numbers by lines, Euclid wanted to identify them. We can see that he does, does not by looking at his definition of unit. This definition is broad, to say the least. He says that a unit is that by virtue of which each of the things that exist is called one. Thus, we can think of one line, one sphere, one cow, one instance of blue, one thought, and so on. The unit is something common to them all. Numbers, then, are simply multitudes composed of these units. From this, we see that Euclid is using lines as instances of things that are innumerable. It is not hard to see some good reasons for Euclid's depiction of numbers as lines. If we, if we consider the options available to him, it is clear that the other alternatives were either non-existent, unsuitable to the science, or simply awkward. Let's consider as an example Proposition 7.1. I put that on here on the handout just so you can take a look at it. <clears throat> here is how Euclid expresses it. Two, so this is the very first proposition in the number books. <clears throat> Two unequal numbers being set out, and a lesser being continually subtracted from the greater, if the number which is left never measures the one before it until the unit is left, the original numbers will be primed to one another. And his diagram looks like this. So look on the, you can see the diagram there. I, I, I could draw it on the board, but does everybody have the handout? Okay. <clears throat> so here A, B, and C, D are the numbers being measured. G is supposed as a common measure, and A, H is the unit. <clears throat> It is Euclid's practice to letter both endpoints of a line as well as its points of division, assuming that the number it represents needs to be measured. If a number does not need to be measured, he names it with a single letter, as you can see here with the line G. The proof, then, is carried out using these letters as stand-ins for the numbers and their parts. So that's the way he does it. <clears throat> Since algebra had not yet been invented, he could not set out and prove 7-1 in a fully symbolic way, just for fun, I put down a possible possibility there. <clears throat> the only alternative besides this, then, to a geometrical representation of numbers would be to give a numerical example, something like this. So <clears throat> this is for the same proposition. For the lesser of two numbers, 5, being continually subtracted from the greater, 91, let the number left over uh, <clears throat> never measure the one before the unit is left. If that is the case, then 5 and 9 are primed to one another. Now, it's tempting to simply write off this procedure as an argument from example, <clears throat> which is not an appropriate mode of scientific demonstration in any science. And this seems true. But we ought to think about how it differs from what he does in the geometrical theorems. <clears throat> For most people, some concrete representation of the thing to be proved needs to be presented to the imagination. And whatever is in the imagination is a singular, not a universal. <clears throat> to prove a theorem about triangles, Euclid must, have, must give us a particular triangle, with determinate sides and angles for our imagination. So how is this unlike the numerical example? Well, in a geometrical proof, it is not difficult to look at a concrete individual and intend only to the universal features that are relevant to the argument. For example, in looking at an isosceles triangle for the purpose of proving 1, 5, namely that the base angles of an isosceles triangle are equal, we need to see that there are two equal and one unequal sides, which are the base angles but we don't need to attend to the relative length of the equal and unequal sides. So I can draw any old isosceles triangle, and you can think about the sides that are equal, the sides that are unequal, the base angles, and you can forget about the fact that I made this big. And 
my lines are straight or not so straight and so on. <clears throat> you can also forget about the fact that there are lots of other isosceles, I mean, infinitely many possible isosceles triangles. You don't need them. Okay? <clears throat> so we see that all those other details don't enter into the argument at all. We can even see that the proof works if all three sides happen to be equal. Hmm? The abstraction of the relevant from the irrelevant is not that hard to do in geometry. But there is something about the way in which the concrete numbers exist in our imagination that gets in the way of performing the necessary mental trick. At least I think so. <clears throat> Um, here, I think we, uh, we might make a distinction between discovering a theorem and proving it. Clearly, examples are invaluable for discovering theorems, both in geometry and in arithmetic. Someone might see a theorem about numbers from one example, even, <clears throat> and even get a sense of how to prove it. This can happen. <clears throat> in very easy theorems, anyone of average intelligence could do it. So <clears throat> here's my example. So the reason why A times B plus C equals A times B plus A times C can easily be seen from examples. So like 2 times 3 plus 4 equals 2 times 3 plus 2 times 4, and so on. <clears throat> so you can look at an example and probably you can figure out how to prove that generally. It's not that hard. <clears throat> but often, uh, most often, it's not that easy. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> um, so that's just setting that aside. That's discovering a theorem. But now we want to talk about proof. Um, for the most part, an examination of a concrete individual is not suitable for proof in arithmetic because of the lack of an inher inherent order within a number. This comes from their character as discrete quantities as multitudes of units. A number does not have any articulation more complex than its divisibility into units or groups of units. <clears throat> it may or may not be actually divided by some act of counting parts, that is, by measurement, once conceived of as divided into units, these units may be counted in any order we please. There's no order natural to them. <clears throat> and if we represent a number by a numeral, at least in the modern manner, using the Hindu Arabic numerals, um, I got messed up here. Okay, anyway, this mode of representation, that is, by using numerals, makes it hard to see anything mathematically significant in a number, either in itself or in relation to others. There's just not enough to look at. So, uh, <clears throat> so we do need something to look at, and we need to often see the numbers as divided into parts or to be measured by some other number. And this is exactly what Euclid does when he represents numbers as divided lines. It's very suitable to see, for seeing what's going on. Um, I think there's even ex an exception that proves the rule. And by the way, I think that phrase means that you're talking about a rule that holds for the most part, and there's some exception that shows the reason for the rule. <laughs> for the most part. So um, what I'm thinking of is shown in, on your handout as the second thing there. Um, in the instances in which a concrete example might be suitable for the theory of numbers are those in which the numbers themselves are grasped, grasped using um, geometrical concepts, as with triangular, square, and cubic numbers. So there you see an example of a, a proof about square numbers, that the um, sum of n successive odd numbers beginning from the unit is equal to the square on n. That little diagram could suggest you, to you a way to prove it, right? <clears throat> so representing uh, these numbers by arrays of dots can serve the imagination well enough. And, but this is a very small territory in the, in the realm of numbers, however. Most theorems about numbers cannot rely on a geometrical crutch, at least not a complicated one like this. Symbolizing a number seven, such, uh, a number such as seven by a line of dots doesn't get you anywhere that a divided line into seven segments will get you more suitably. 
Um, Euclid's way, for example, does not give the false impression that seven is nothing more than seven ones side by side, as if it had no character and unity of its own. So Euclid's way really is the best. Um, His method of visually articulating units and numbers by representing them as divided lines serves his science very well. The lines may always be made of reasonably short length, since any arbitrarily small line can be thought of as the unit. As mentioned above, we are able in this way to grasp the number as a whole containing these parts. Because of the abstractness of the representation, it is not hard to disregard the actual number of divisions in the illustration and to focus on what is essential. In other words, there's no reason to pay attention to the actual count of the divisions as if one were merely calculating. So let's see how this works by looking at Proposition 7-4, which is on your handout, which proves that any number is either a part or parts of any number, the less or the greater. The larger number is represented by A, and although it contains the lesser number of parts in it, the actual measuring of it does not need to be seen. So you see he doesn't show it as actually measured because you don't need to see that. On the other hand, the lesser might not measure the greater, but only parts of the lesser will measure it. So the parts of the lesser have to be shown. The lesser is shown as the line BC divided at E and F, and also another line D equal to the number used to measure both BC and A. In the proof, the articulation of the line into parts helps one to understand the reason for the theorem. We're not going to go through the argument. You can do that on your own if you want to. The fact that BC is shown as divisible into three parts does not get in the way of understanding the proof for it is not hard to see that the exact number does not matter to the argument. The proof rests on the nature of measurement, and measure is illustrated in the lines in a way that does not call to mind vividly the particular results of the measurement. Is is this not the key to understanding Euclid's use of lines? Since the truths of arithmetic rest on the idea of measure, we often need to see measurement in action, which requires an order in space and nothing more. To sum up then, this part. Showing numbers as lines depicts them as discrete quantities relatable to one another, either through measuring the other or through their having some common measure. And in this way, Euclid facilitates our grasp of the truths which he wants to prove about them. His technique accomplishes this without suggesting the false notion that a given number has no unity as a distinct species. Part two. Not beginning at the beginning, the order of treatment of arithmetical theorems. The order which uh, we find in books seven through nine of the elements is puzzling. The scientific treatment of arithmetic should begin with the definitions and postulates and then proceed to prove the simplest properties of numbers first, followed by the more complex ones. At least it seems that way. One would expect that the first theorems would have regard to the first division of number into the odd and the even. Euclid does present such theorems, but not until book 10, or, sorry, book 9 in Proposition 21 and following, where they seem to be a kind of afterthought. Only then would, would one expect, that is, after treating the odd and the even, would one expect a treatment of the other kinds of numbers, such as prime and composite, square and cube, perfect, and so on. And just as the study proportion in plane figure comes last in his treatment of plane geometry, so one might expect the treatment of proportion in number to come last, too, But this is not the case, though it is true that he defers treatment of continued proportion until book nine. The theorems about the odd and the even come up after propositions about all these other kinds of numbers. In short, the way in which Euclid orders his material in these books 
does not seem to conform to ordinary scientific procedure. Why not? <clears throat> Maybe this apparent disorder is a clue, revealing that Euclid does not intend to present the reader with the science of arithmetic as such. <clears throat> After all, these books are embedded in a work of geometry. <clears throat> Could it be that the books really and properly belong to geometry? Could it be that they contain truths about magnitude that involve number? That the proper object of these books is the continuum as perfectly measurable? Perhaps Euclid is concerned not with number in the abstract, but with number as a number of something. This would give further reason for exhibiting these numbers as straight lines, the simplest of all species of continuous quantity. Clearly, this is not meant to exclude the application of these theorems to any kind of magnitude subject to number. The universality of his definition of the unit indicates that the theorems apply to number wherever it is found. An odd number of cats plus an even number of cats is an odd number of cats. Okay. <clears throat> Despite the general applicability of the theorems, it seems likely to me that Euclid includes them in the elements because they are things about number that the students of geometry should know and be able to use. If this is correct, the order in which he considers the property of numbers must be understood within the context of the whole book. <clears throat> so, this is not all perfectly worked out, but it, we'll see what we get here. <clears throat> I have a, a number of observations to try to support what I just said. Observation one, a, no, a notion that is not defined but is fundamental <clears throat> to all that follows is the notion of measure. Definition three says that a number is a part of a number, <clears throat> the less of the greater when it measures the greater. The first notion of measure is of a magnitude laid out along another magnitude so that it goes into it a certain number of times. Although there is something arbitrary in the procedure, one can begin at either end, for example, of the line when you measure it, right? <clears throat> uh, there is a comprehensible order of the units from left to right or right to left. Um, and if you try to lay down the unit randomly on the line, you'll probably err, right? And if you count the divisions unsystematically, you will probably get confused. So there's a kind of order that, that the mind imposes on it. <clears throat> when counting discrete objects, we tend to imitate the spatial order by systematically ordering things in space. <clears throat> there is plenty of evidence that in ancient times such things as sheep were counted by associating them one by one with notches on a stick. And in Middle English, these sticks are called tallies or tally sticks, by the way, just a point of interest. So that's where we get the word tally, tally something up. <clears throat> on the other hand, the units in an abstract number are not laid out alongside one another. Where are the units in seven? There is no where there. <laughs> And what happens when we subtract one number from another? When we subtract three from seven, we don't think about which of the units in three are being taken away, unless maybe we're dividing up a group of apples or something like that, then we might think about it, but not in the abstract. <clears throat> that the science of arithmetic treats measure in a unique way is also suggested by the fact that it has special names for the composition and resolution of numbers, that is, addition and subtraction. It is interesting, then, that Euclid begins not with special names for these operations, but with measure, the generic term that applies both to measuring things in space and to counting. This suggests to me two further observations. First, that he is associating his study of number with geometry, and second, that he is not interested in calculation, except perhaps in a subordinate role once in a while. <clears throat> so he's not interested in the numbers as something you calculate with, really. Okay, here's an objection. <clears throat> Euclid defines number as a multitude composed of units, not as something measured by a unit. But consider that Euclid does not have us to measure, sorry, does not have us imagine producing the numbers by counting as a modern text would most likely do. Rather, he starts with a number conceived as a whole, a magnitude, a multitude rather, 
And then he says that it is composed of units. And this is verified in the imagination, is it not, by laying the unit, whether it's conceived as a pointer line or whatever, alongside itself so many times until the desired multitude is reached. But unless the multitude is conceived as a whole resulting from this operation, which is in fact just the inverse of measurement, it has no unity, but is a mere heap of units. The unity of the number itself is seemed to arise from some continuity or at least contiguity of the units. Thus we are led in our imagination to the line and we see once again the appropriateness of Euclid's representation of the number. Okay. <clears throat> so again, the idea here is that um, number is really being seen in the context of geometry, uh, that is a space. <clears throat> Observation two. The beginning of book seven with numbers primed to one another now seems justifiable. If he were interested in pure numbers, why would he not treat prime numbers and composite numbers themselves first before treating the relatively prime and composite? I mean, usually you would think you treated the absolute first and the relative based on it. <clears throat> it is plain that he thinks one should begin with numbers in comparison with each other rather than with them considered in themselves. This makes sense if he is ultimately interested in comparing the measures of magnitudes appearing in geometrical figures, and this is in fact what he does in book 13, indeed in the very last theorem of the work. Um, so um, <clears throat> there you're looking at um, the, um, the magnitudes, the sides of the regular figures, right, in comparison to each other, not absolutely. So again, it's interesting he starts numbers that way too, looking at them in comparison to each other. <clears throat> so I guess one thing I'm seeing is a number of parallels between what he does with in the number books and what he does in the geometrical books. So let's see some more examples of that. <clears throat> so observation three. By defining the even and the odd, <clears throat> right after defining part, parts, and multiple, <clears throat> and before he defines prime, so he defines even and odd first, part, parts, and multiple, and then prime numbers, <clears throat> Euclid seems to acknowledge the primacy of this division of number, that is, unto the odd and the even, but he puts off any theorems about them until late in this treatment of number, as I already mentioned. <clears throat> Though I will not take time right now to examine these theorems in detail, I will say that I think they appear where they do because of their connection to the last proposition in the number books, which is the, con uh, the construction of the perfect numbers. <clears throat> this depends on the double proportion, that is 2 to 4 and so on, to eight, which continually produces even times even numbers, as is set out in um, Book 9, Prop 32. So if he wants to tell us about even times even numbers, perhaps he thought it suitable to talk about all the kinds of numbers measured by the, sorry, defined by the even and the odd. And this was just a good place to do it since it in, comes to lead to a numerical perfection in the very last proposition. <clears throat> so in this way, the number books are brought to a close within a, uh, with a problem that parallels the theorems in book four of plane geometry and in book 13 of solid geometry, that is with something seen or named as perfect. This suggests to me that books seven through nine should be conceived geometrically, again, because of their kind of the way they parallel what happens in the, in the other books. <clears throat> so finally, observation four. Seeing the number of books as ordered to geometry makes sense of the placement of book 10 in the elements. If 10 were included only as needed for later propositions, it would make more sense to place it between books um, 11 and 12, actually. <clears throat> That's where it starts to be used. The most basic theorems of solid geometry in Book 11 do not involve an explicit consideration of the irrational, but the first and foundational theorem of Book 10, which we might call Euclid's limit theorem, is the basis for the procedure in 12.1, uh, 
which is a proof that all cir that circles are to one another as the in the ratio of the squares and their diameters. So he needs book 10-1 for that. <clears throat> book 12 begins with the integration of the theory of irrational magnitudes with solid geometry. So it is clear that Euclid had other reasons for placing 10 <clears throat> right after the number books instead of where it would first be needed. And this observation brings me to part three. <clears throat> part three, how books seven through 10 fit into the whole work. One way to define a science like geometry is to give its subject genus, and the subject genus of geometry is magnitude. Magnitude is divided into that which is in one dimension, the straight line, that which is in two dimensions, the plane, and that which is in three dimensions, the solid. Euclid treats the second species, that is uh, the plane, in books one through four and, and in book six, and the third species in books 11 through 13. Book five stands apart as a universal treatment of ratio and magnitude. Does he neglect to treat the first species? Is it not rather reasonable to say that he treats the first species in books seven through nine? I'm oh, sorry, seven, seven through 10. On the face of it, this seems reasonable and that the illustrations presented are lines, as we've said, but it is perhaps far-fetched to say that one-dimensional magnitude is the subject of these books, given, that the, given the universal applicability of number and also an objection I received from Mr. Algros Goodwin that he never um, mentions number, I mean, it mentions line in the books. He uses them to illustrate it, but he doesn't mention them. <clears throat> so to test the idea a little bit, we must see how his treatment of number and the uncountable uh, and the uncountable compares to his treatment of the plane and solid extension. <clears throat> um, the name geometry derives from measure and earth, and it is no doubt originated from the need to define land boundaries. As the theoretician, the geometer is no longer concerned with applications of his science, but it would be wrong, I think, to sever the connection with the idea of measurement. The geometer does not measure as a surveyor does, but he does, as it were, size up the ways in which his subject can be divided. Even when he is not comparing magnitudes, which he is not able to do until after books five, he is distinguishing the various figures from what lies outside them, setting them apart from the infinite and unknowable continuum, and making their properties known. In this way, the figures become more intelligible to us. In plane geometry, this is accomplished by delimiting portions of the plane by means of lines, both straight and curved. These lines provide the boundaries which <coughs> define the various species of figure which the plane geometer considers. <clears throat> For Euclid, these lines are the straight and the circular, each postulated to exist and then used to generate all the other figures which he studies. There are riches of truths to be discovered about such figures, and Euclid gives us many of these, including the most fundamental and important. In a similar way, the solid geometer takes his part of the subject genus, the three-dimensional continuum, and divides it using plane figures and curved surfaces to bring forth the solid figures that he wishes to understand. <coughs> these figures are often very beautiful, and in, in that they approach more closely to the reality of the world and are especially worthy of contemplation. The student of the line, however, <clears throat> has, as it were, a very limited resource. <laughs> the only way to divide a one-dimensional object is to mark off a point or points, to count the divisions, and to look at the ratios of the parts, and perhaps the ratios of that one line to another line that's been set out. And that sounds pretty boring on the face of it. <clears throat> the amazing thing is that far from being barren of interest, there are such riches to be found in the numbers which may be discerned in the line that we are far from having discovered them all. 
in addition to the theory of numbers, which is still a very lively field for discovery, there are many truths known and not yet known about irrational quantities, far more than what Euclid himself ever imagined. So, there is a common notion under which we may understand what Euclid does in treating each kind of continuum. This is the notion of dividing, dividing it using beings of the next lower dimensionality with a view to separating out species which may be explored and understood. Uh, can we say then that books 7 through 10 treat of lines insofar as they are measurable or immeasurable? I think that this is true if rightly understood, although I will suggest a way in which the claim should be qualified to make it more accurate. The great advantage of looking at these books this way is that it allows us to see number, the number books not as interlopers, but as properly part of Euclid's subject matter. Moreover, this idea makes it clear that Book 10 belongs together with the number books as part of a greater whole. Beyond the fact that lines are presented to our imagination in all four books, there are other reasons for seeing them as belonging together. In Book 10, Euclid goes beyond considering incommensurability by defining rational, rational and irrational lines and areas. This seems to me a strong indication that Book 10 belongs to the same part of the work as the number books. In other words, he's looking at, <clears throat> he looks at lines in comparison to one another where they have numerical ratios and where they don't have numerical ratios. <clears throat> um, his definition allows us to predicate of a single line, its strat status as rational or irrational, some one line having been set out as standard. It is reasonable to see the standard line, which Euclid does not bother to designate, as the concrete unit. <clears throat> With this line hidden away in the background, one can treat even of, these, of the unruly lines as if they were something. While not going so far as Descartes in bringing arithmetic into geometry, Euclid doesn't hesitate to give us a way to name lines not only as irrational, but even to assign them to distinct species of the irrational, as binomials, apotomies, and the like. Finally, there's a certain parallelism. Well, so, so there's a way in which he's making the intent, he's making the irrational divisions of the line as intelligible to us as, it can, as they can be. So, finally, there's a certain parallelism between the ending of, ending of Book 9 and the ending of Book 10. Proposition 36 of Book 9 shows that an endless sequence of, perf of perfect numbers may be generated. You may remember that. <clears throat> um, in book, uh, Proposition 115 of Book 10 shows us that an unequal, unending sequence of different irrational lines can be generated. So in both cases, you have a certain kind of thing that you can do, you keep doing indefinitely. The, just as the perfect measures go on and on, so do the imperfect divisions. Again, he missed many, many kinds of irrationals, but even with the kinds that he, he saw, he, he saw that, that it had, they had this character. <clears throat> so um, again, that, that sort of similarity in the way that book ends to the way the number of books ends make you kind of want to put them together. <clears throat> so, having said that, I can see that the number of books do not concern themselves with lines in the same way that book 10 does, uh, not just irrational, irrational. But, um, and to refer to lines in the enunciations of the, of the uh, theorems in the number of books would be inappropriate as it would take away from the universality of their application. It would, it would, it would be better then, I think, to say that these books, that is seven through nine, deal with number inasmuch as it arises from the division of the line. <clears throat> this is enough, I think, to justify the inclusion of these books under the heading of geometry. Though one must admit that number also arises from the division of planes and solids, it is reasonable to say that for the mathematician, 
number arises first from the division of the line. If the line could not be divided discreetly, neither could the plane nor the solid. <clears throat> so, as with the number books, book 10 is not exclusively applicable to lines. Proposition one, to take an important example, is universally applicable to magnitude, and Euclid applies it without comment in book 12 to circular areas. Nonetheless, most of the, of the 115 propositions of book 10 deal explicitly either with lines or with figures having determinate kinds of lines as sides, that is, plane figures. <coughs> the exceptions are 1 through 8, 11 through 13, 15, and 16. All those are enunciated as being about magnitude, not as about line. But that's a very small number out of 115 propositions. <coughs> so it's clear that the notions of rational and irrational apply broadly, at least to quadri quadrilineal figures. Um, although, and although the notion of rational and irrational could be extended to solids, Euclid doesn't say anything about this. I think perhaps because that part of the science hadn't really been investigated and discovered. Uh, at least that's my guess. <clears throat> From these considerations, we see that Euclid did not neglect the study of magnitudes in one dimension, but in fact he has an extensive and rich treatment of them, embracing both those with and without numerable parts. He also knew how to apply his knowledge of the rational and irrational to figures. We see the fruits of this in the very last proposition of the work, Book 13, Prop 18, in which he sets out the ratios of the sides of all the perfect figures to one another. Okay. Finally, let's consider the placement of these four books in the elements. Recall how the work is organized. There are four books dealing with plain figures as such. Of these, Book 2 has a unique character, one difficult for the beginner to appreciate, but which it gives tools for discovery and construction in the rest of the geometry. After this, there's a book on ratio and proportion considered in the abstract, book five, <coughs> followed by an application of these theorems to plane figures. <coughs> Next come the number books and book 10, and then all three books on solid geometry. Solid geometry, so we're looking at the whole overall order of all those books. Solid geometry is more difficult than the study of two-dimensional figures on the knowledge of which it obviously depends. So the need for Euclid to treat plane before solid figures is obvious. <coughs> The most obscure, they are, uh, the ones on the solid figures are the most obscure and perhaps the most beautiful, so it is fitting as well as necessary that they come last. But if I'm right that books 7 through 10 deal with divisions of the continuous in one dimension, why does he treat the subject after the plane and before the solids? Why not treat the, first, the, the uh, one dimensional first? <clears throat> that is, why not start with the number books? That kind of fits too with our, our way of being educated, right? We do arithmetic and we do geometry. <clears throat> A few, figure, a few reasons come to mind right away. Pedagogically, it makes sense to treat the more knowable, not to mention the more interesting to students, before the less knowable. And whereas the numerable lines do seem to be more knowable than figures, the same cannot be said of the irrational lines. In my experience guiding freshmen through the elements, I saw that even in the number books, the more complicated theorems often cause the students more problems than the theorems of book, books one through four. It seems to me that the more subtle properties of numbers are less knowable to the students than most of the truths about plane figures. The properties are often well hidden in numbers. Perhaps also the fact that the imagination is less vividly engaged in the number books makes the propositions more difficult to learn and remember. So although these reasons that I've just given have some force, the most important reason is properly mathematical. Numbers must be drawn out of the line by division, to divide or measure lines, it is necessary to carry out constructions in two dimensions. 
Euclid bisects a straight line in 110, and in 6.9 he cuts off a prescribed part from a given straight line. In the latter proposition, he shows that any straight line may be measured by any number. He even anticipates irrational divisions in um, Book 6, Prop 13, where he constructs a mean proportional between two line, any two lines. These illustrate that in order to measure a line or to show that it cannot be measured by some other line, it is necessary to carry out constructions in the plane. From this, we see that the one-dimensional continuum is not only less knowable than the plane figures to us, but also in its character as divisible. <clears throat> Thus, it is necessary for Euclid to order these books as he does. But is there, is there a good reason not to defer the treatment of straight lines until after treating solid geometry? Well, if book 10 belongs to 7 through 9, it makes it clear that you'd want to put all of them before solid geometry. And also, Euclid makes use of propositions from book 10. Uh, sorry. Uh, yeah, I guess that's what I just said. <clears throat> Anyway, it's impossible to know the absolute truth about this matter, like why you didn't save books 7 through 9 till the end. It, it would look, make him look like an afterthought, for sure, I would say. Um, and it wouldn't have allowed him to end the book in the beautiful way he does with the solid figures. So it seems pretty reasonable that he would not, he, he would do those earlier. Um, okay. So, anyway. Um, now, it's true, I said that the number of books there are to serve geometry, but it's true that there's a lot in the number of books that, don't get, that doesn't get used, that is really irrelevant to the geometry he does. But all, all I'll say about that is it's not Euclid's way, as far as I can see, to do the bare minimum. Once he begins to treat number, he adds much that goes beyond what, he needs, what one needs to see about the possibilities of comparing the measures of the divided continuum. Um, and in this way, he enriches our understanding of number and it's a knowledge which is certainly valuable for its own sake. <clears throat> so, Finally, let me say that the idea of measure runs through all three books, that is, all three number books, showing that the comparison of numbers is at least important as properties of the numbers considered in themselves. It's not my intention to consider the internal order or partial disorder of the number books. We'd be here for several hours, if I could even do it. <clears throat> I just want to point out that every indication I can see points to the conclusion that Euclid is not interested in developing the art of science and arithmetic in its own right, but treats it in the context of geometry for various reasons. Because it enriches geometry by its connections with the perfect solids, because when joined to the treatment of the irrational, it gives a kind of completion to geometry, and because the previous traditions of connecting numbers with figures, as in square, triangular, and cubic numbers, suggest that arithmetic and geometry have a kind of affinity with geometry embracing not only the numerable, but also that which cannot be counted. Thank you.